Hi, we are in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast, and we have a, a great guest. We have Frank Miroslav, who is a writer and Twitter personality, <laughs> and he he is going to talk with us about the global protests. So, what 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 is the the thing that, that you have noticed about this protest that you think uh, it, it's not very common that 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 people are missing from from this from the normal and regular discourse? Um, well, I think the most important thing is actually they're not being talked about. Um, I, it really only came to my attention that, you know, there are all these protests going on, I think, um, in the last couple of months and like there are a shitload of protests. Um, yeah, um, I think, I think, I think that's changing. Um, I just came across an article in the Atlantic today that was talking about them. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like, there's like this massive wave of protests going on and there's very little um just being said about it um you know there's people reporting on the individual protests of course but there's no like grand theories of what's going on um i think i think that's okay i think it's i think it's like a bit too soon to say um like what the cause is you know people are trotting out usual complaints like government corruption or you know inequality or whatever um But I think I think it's going to be something that we like figure out after the fact. Uh, I also think that um, I also think that you know, I think I think there's also like a lot of heterogeneity in where the protests are coming from. Um, I think I, I I don't think all of them are positive. Um, I think some are probably quite negative. You know, sort of reactionary. Um, that you know, like that's not to say like any one protest is bad it's just to acknowledge that you know um when you're dealing with like leaderless mass protests um it's it's very difficult to know what what's actually going on and i think um i think people have like an automatic sort of uh reaction where they're like oh you know like this model that i have of how the world works like this model explains this thing and so therefore that's just what's happening um and i think um I think in a lot of cases that's wrong. Um, I think I think there are some good. Um, I think there are some like good things that people have written that can explain what's going on, uh, but they tend to be like more focused around, um, like really just saying like here is why uh, instability is happening. Um, they usually don't say oh you know like this is the people rising up to like fight neoliberalism or to you know fight globalism or whatever. It's more like um you know uh one book I've been reading recently is um the revolt of the public. Uh, but I think I think by um Guri Martin. Um, and he doesn't. It's it's he like really really doesn't want to ascribe any sort of ideology to the people who are protesting. He's like, he, his main thrust is just to say, look, like prior to the internet, like, you know, we had this very centralized top down um, form of narrative uh, where, you know, these people who had authority, um, they just said stuff and like, you kind of had to believe them because there wasn't really anything like that could counterweight that, um, you know, for better or worse. Um, And since the rise of the internet, that you know, that's quickly um, become undone as the um, choice for like where people get their information has just expanded so dramatically in such a short period of time. Um, 
and I, 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 you know, I disagree with some of what he's what he says, but um, I think um, I think the overall thesis, and I think the fact that like there's so much more information, I think is uh, a really big deal, and um. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I don't think that's an original thought. Um, you know, people in like America kind of went crazy about social media after Trump got elected. Um, but um, I think I think I think it's actually I think, but I think also there is something there. Like I think you know, I think like the liberal establishment in America was like, you know, oh, you know, it's just the Russians. Like all we got to do is like you know make sure the Russians can't interfere with us, and then like we're fine. Um, I'm sure some people have more nuanced takes, but that was like, you know, a very like simplistic narrative to make sense of things. Um, but you know, in, in reality, like this is, um, like this is probably like as big a shift as like, you know, the printing press or, you know, any other, um, epoch defining technology, like, yeah, like, and, and it really sucks that, you know, you're in the middle of it and you don't know where it's going to go. And sometimes that's fucking terrifying. But um, on the other hand, like, the, it like it really seems impossible to me. Like, I, I, I don't, it, it is very, very difficult to put this, like, back in the bottle. Um, yeah, that, so the, those, those are my thoughts about that. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's that's certainly interesting. I think that that uh, I agree with you that the, the protests are very different, and I think well, some of the protests are very weird. I think there are protests in the rural parts of Netherlands that, for different reasons, aren't being covered. But uh, on the other hand, I, I guess that it's true. I mean, urban protests are generally much better coverage, but even. Urban protests, like in Bolivia, is very curious because Bolivia doesn't have, uh, you know, the kind of media that Chile has. So Chile is a much more middle class country. So it has much more media outlets that that let um, people know more or less what is happening, and and that has made the coverage much more clear from from the start. I, I mean, even you know, some people that are not necessarily that much left-wingers being yeah. kind of sympathizing with the protesters that the violence is overwhelming. And the issue is that with Bolivia, there isn't that much courage. It's very small, the kind of courage there is. Mm. Because yeah. uh, either the, 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 the political... Um, the the television outlets are, are, are relatively near to the government or for foreign journalists it's very unsafe to 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 record many things and a lot of the protesters in in Chile some of the protests of the of the most interesting photos of videos are from you know like young people you know yeah, yeah. so the protesters in, in Bolivia are much older so maybe they don't even know that much about the technology and another thing that people forget is that in Bolivia as well as in Peru and in Ecuador and you know in in Colombia some people are uh, don't speak Spanish, so uh, uh, cell phones and and you know like don't come in, in, in any indigenous language, as far as I know. Oh, so yeah. you know if you don't if you don't 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 speak Spanish, it's very difficult for you to to use a, a, a cell phone. So even things that are like very simple and in reality are sometimes forgotten. And I think that that courage is really interesting because I, I think that. If one sees the, the coverage, also 
in in the case of France, I think it has you know the aesthetic of you know the, the particularly the, the the kind of the guy that 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 was with with his tennis racket. You know, obviously that represents some kind of. of uh, of social capital, <laughs> I, I doubt that, that that many people in Bolivia have um, a tennis racket. There are many places to, to play in, in in many parts of Latin America. Uh, tennis is, is more of a of a upper class sport, mm. but I, I know that in, in France it's quite different. But but I think it's the kind of things that are very not very. I mean. That could be uh, seen as small things, but are very revealing about how we record the things. And uh, obviously, the the the, the yellow vests in, in France are very heterodox mov- movement. I mean, they they have you know from from communists you know the, to anarchists to yeah. to even libertarians. Uh, uh, you know, like yeah. they have in their jackets. They say in their buy Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, it, yeah it, it's very weird. And, you know, to, to all right fascists and Nazis even. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, the, the, the protests in, 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 in France are really wild. And and I think, I mean, this could lead us to, to the next topic that we, are, that we will talk, which is uh, far right uh Populism, because it's very interesting the, the kind of development that, that it has been, you know, formed around, you know, like with with Trump and with Brexit and now with with uh, uh, with governments in Eastern Europe. It's very curious because um, if one sees Eastern Europe, one sees that, that basically they are more or less red brown governments. You know, they. They are very conservative in social issues, but they are very uh, on economic issues. They, they they want to intervene in the economy a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, hang on. And yeah. Oh, uh, can you um? So can you just like cut this part out? This um, because I I have to go look up. There's like a study on this that I really really like. Um, and um. Yeah, if you could just cut out this part <laughs> in the final, like, in the like the final version you release. Oh, I, I prefer not to to cut it to to because I. Oh, can. <sighs> okay, sorry, but but like. Yeah, yeah but I, 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 it's it's better not to cut it to to try to. To to give it to, to to make it easy to to edit. So now I was going to, to to ask you what what do you think about this kind of red brown uh, the red brown element of, of the of the populist right? Um, the red what? Sorry, the red brown like the, this kind of economic nationalism that is kind of promoting. Um. Okay, so there's this study. Um, hang on. Oh my god, this is so dumb. Okay, uh, yeah, it's called um, "Are Cultural and Economic Conservatism um, Positively Co- Correlated?" A large-scale cross-national test. Uh, it was released 
2019. Wow, that's recent. Um, basically, it's a large-scale survey across the world, basically looking at does cultural conservatism and quote-unquote economic conservatism, which is actually more like economic liberalism, but whatever, um, does that correlate? Because, you know, in America, that obviously correlates. But is that true for the rest of the world? And it turns out that America is actually um, America is actually an outlier on this. Everywhere else, it looks like economic, what I'd call economic liberalism, which to Americans is like economic protectionism, but whatever, um, that correlates with social liberalism. And economic protectionism correlates with social conservatism, which of course makes intuitive sense, right? If like you didn't know anything about our current world and you were just like asked to imagine, oh yeah, like would people who favor less intervention in the economy, um, you know, would they favor more more or less intervention in people's lives? Like you kind of just assume um, that that's the case because like, I, I imagine it'd just be easy to make like value arguments for like values that, you know, um, include both. It's like, yeah, like you shouldn't interfere with people's lives and you shouldn't interfere, interfere with how people, you know, interact in the economy, you know, unless like it hurts people or whatever. And sometimes not even that. Um, yeah. So I, I think actually what this study suggests to me at least is that um, like the American situation um is like it's 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 an outlier probably and i don't know this but because i like I, i've been meaning to look into this but i just haven't but um what it's just to me is like the american economy the american like political uh, the american like political landscape and the american political common sense uh were basically dictated by like the cold war and the fact that you know um like quote unquote big government progressives um like for whatever reason pissed off the social conservatives um and i you know there's probably something in there to do with like you know the 60s revolution and stuff um and also the fact that like communism was supposedly synonymous with um you know state control at the time and that communism also um, you know, was explicitly atheist and in some regards was very socially progressive on some fronts, um, but not really. <laughs> um, I, I think it was more just like, and, oh, and then also the fact that, you know, there was just like a lot of money being pumped into this stuff. Um, I think I think what it was is it wasn't like American conservatism like wasn't built on any foundational principles. It was just an alliance of convenience. Um and you know clearly like to anyone who's paid like the tiniest bit of attention like clearly that alliance is shattering if not like in flames and like collapsing and i think um um i would have to look into this but i imagine that europe saw something similar in that um like a lot of conservatives in europe maybe maybe please don't quote me on this, but maybe like backed more economically liberal um, policies and stuff because the, like communism was um, seen as, you know, like uh, an existential threat basically. And, you know, they also had like, you know, a lot of money being pumped into this um, 
and like that kind of smoothed over the um disagreements um and basically oh and also you know going back to what i said about like top-down media infrastructure like they you know they're obviously dissenters but like they just didn't have the ability to get their message out there and so they were, they you know they could be cordoned off uh and kept out of a room and so like that was a you know stable equilibria um because of like a confluence of factors but like there was nothing there was nothing like foundational holding it together it was just like you know uh, it was like a system that like required a lot of upkeep and could only be justified because you know there was like this existential threat so you know if you like ever had if you were ever serious about doing anything like you you always had to like be but yeah you people always had like the ability to just say like yeah but you know if you break away from our coalition like the alternative is you know those hippie degenerate communists who want to run everything um and so yeah um i i I think i think what we're seeing um to sort of bring it all back together is um it's basically like conservatism is um is like trying to like figure out okay what what do we do um now that we don't have like this existential threat bearing down on us, um, like clearly, you know, this alliance isn't working, you know, it turns out that when you give people choice, they don't immediately like turn to the trad values that we thought were so essential. Um, uh, and, you know, um, and, and yeah. Oh, and yeah. And it also turns out like, oh yeah, no, we actually like the state doing things when, you know, it's things we like. Um, so yeah, that, that seems to make a lot of intuitive sense to me. Um, I don't know, you know, you could probably like pick into the data and like find, you know, irregularities with what I just said, but I think, you know, like the general thesis holds up. Um, yeah. And I, and I, I think if, you know, you gave me more time to prepare, I could probably flesh it out and make a pretty good case for it. So yeah, that, those are my thoughts. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I mean, I was thinking about a piece I, I read a while about uh, a conservative calling for for America to 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 implant the China model. So it wasn't a complete break with 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 uh, with economic liberalism in some way. Even if it's 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 a hard call China liberal anyway, but. Uh, I mean, the China model is very curious because the, the, the political government of China is all over the place, but it's, it's nonetheless a model which uh, differs a lot from from the kind of libertarian or classic yeah. liberal version that, you know, that, 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 that has, you know, like been on the right for a while, yeah. you know, or, or as some people call it, neoliberalism. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that China is a very different model. It's a model that, that makes a certain degree of economic uh, freedom to certain, uh, even if united with a, with a strong state, you know, like a, a very strong state apparatus and, and I think probably as Samuel Hammond once called it, it, it seems to be becoming a full luxury but not communism rather than full luxury Confucianism <laughs> because it seems to have much more strong nationalist elements. And I think that's what resonates now yeah. with with, uh, with with American conservatives. So, so what do you think about this uh, this China model for America? Yeah, oh, that I mean, like, 
That would be hilarious. I, I think like Francis Fukuyama would like literally have a heart attack if America adopted that. Thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, we would have a day where we like mock the end of history uh, if that came to pass. I mean, I mean, like, I think, um, I think one thing that unfortunately gets ignored in like political discourse, but I think is like absolutely essential is, um, I think, I think it's the question of like values, um. I think that, you know, the question of like what what do we want um is is like paramount. And I think I think a lot I think a lot of um political discourse, you know, just kinda like it completely ignores that. Um both on the left and the right. Um and uh, yeah, that's a big problem because I think a lot of the, the chaos we're seeing is um is the result of we had these sort of narratives they they weren't great but you know they at least made sense sort of um if you weren't living on the periphery but you know if you're like if you were like relatively comfortable like they made sense and you know like they may suck but like at least like the grand scheme of things it's like oh you know like i don't have to worry about these deep like existential anxieties um and I think I think various forces have just like stripped that away from a lot of people, and I think um, I think as a result, like really what we're like really like, um, you know, really like one of the central crises of you know our civilization and perhaps even our species is like we don't like know what we want, um, and yeah, it's. Uh, you know you can see this manifesting in all sorts of places um you know like american conservatives like you know jumping on sort of chinese social values is one example um you know like y- yeah and and you know you can see this like people you know like online trads who you know they will like post these really idealistic pictures of the 50s or you know even agricultural life or whatever and they're like oh yeah those were the days um and you know it's laughable but um i think i think like the alternative is you know like if you don't have um if you don't have like a a, like a a lens to view the world through um like the like it's literally um the result is like sort of this insanity where you know nothing makes sense and yeah that that like um you know i think that people will do like adopt like really stupid or really horrific um beliefs just to escape like that existential horror <laughs> um yes yeah, i may have gone a little deep there but um yeah i think um i think you know like it makes sense um if like you know yeah like well, first of all, like conservatives, you know, they may say they value like individual freedom or whatever, but clearly they don't based on like their actions and their policies and like how they treat people who, you know, fight for that. Um, but also like, you know, um, like it doesn't matter how much individual freedom you have if like, you know, you think your life is meaningless or like you think that everything you do is built on sand. Um, so yeah, like that that sort of move you know, if, if my perspective on this is correct, then that sort of move makes a certain amount of logical sense. It's like, yeah, like I will, I will give up this thing that I claim I value. So I don't have to feel 
like horror all the time. That makes sense to me. Okay, so I think we could move to the to the next uh, topic that, that is going to be the the issue with the the, the resurgence of the radical left. So I, I see two uh, several articles written about this. First, there was an article that was saying that uh, that Bernie Sanders was the one kind of mm. leading the the way that moving the the the. the the discourse uh, on the left in, in America and others that, that were uh, arguing the same for Jeremy Corbyn, but I wonder to, to what degree they are they are they are in, in some way true because I feel that the the economic crisis of two thousand eight and the Wall Street movement um, bring to the horizon a, a, a very resurgence of, of the far left. You know, people like C. Derek Marr has been talking like, you know, um, basically in America, people weren't talking about left communism, about, you know, radicalism, radical ways of, of communism that are not the, the kind of revolutionary communist party or this really... <laughs> Outlets that, you know, but, but really thinking about you know uh, a way to, to think yeah. uh, outside the capitalist system but but still uh, having um, freedom within the system and, and I think that that this kind of radical developments I think that, that in some degree we are part of, of this with, with with, with I think as, as some part of, of what mm. is called left libertarianism, I guess in some degree. But but there are surgeons of different kind of ideologies that think to they want to think in a world without capitalism. They want yeah. to think beyond capitalism. And and it's very interesting because I, I see the, the phenomenon in a very different direction. So I think that in the American case, I think that, that Bernie actually is moving to the left because of the base. That the base is much more to the left. And uh, I remember hearing a very interesting issue uh, about DSA, for example. You know, uh, for example, DSA chapters in, outside New York are, are further to the left than the, the, the New York City chapter of the DSA. And, and the reason is very simple. In... in in you know, small cities, there are not the, the, the Revolutionary Communist Party or the Party for Socialism Revolution or, or I don't even know what bad examples or, or the or basically socialist alternative or you know the the, the the threats basically. So everyone goes to to even anarchists in some cases go, goes to the DSA and, and which has made it that in some uh, even rural parts of the country you, you find DSA chapters that are further to level the the New York City chapter, which is kind of ironic in many ways, but um, I'm thinking in the in the in the in the British case, which is our our case that is interesting. I feel that in that case, Corbyn has been much more, you know, has had a more central part. But also the, the people that are near Corbyn, that are thinking, uh, that some people have described the, the yeah. thoughts as full luxury communism. But I think that, that, that in that part, you know, as, as David Graver put it, 
uh, it's they are thinking in a much more close relationship with 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 the uh, with thinking beyond capitalism. I think that you know the Bernie Sanders people, the the the, the people that work for Bernie Sanders, not necessarily some people that are uh, that are his fans, but the people that work for Bernie Sanders are much more. Um, social democratic, you know, they they want Sweden, but but obviously Sweden is not, you know, yeah, yeah. A, a progressive utopia. I mean, it's uh, if the polls uh, go, if if the polls are right, uh, it seems that that the, the Sweden Democrats, who is a party founded by Nazis, is going to to win the elections in the next election. So, I, I mean, it's 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 further to right than the the the. Everything and and it's has been precisely because of of of, of social democrats enacting a lot of liberal policies in, in a very strange way, but um, I think that that I was wondering what do you think about that? What do you think about this development? In the Sorry, the DSA. No, the radical left. What do you think about I the developments that, in the radical left? I think I think that the radical left. Um, I don't. So William Gillis, shout out. Um, he wrote this really good. He wrote this really good piece. Um, it's really short, and everyone should read it. It's called "The Emptiness of the Left," in which he argues that there's basically no basis to the left. Like, it's it's basically the basis to the left is like a bunch of people who um, they, they they don't they don't really have any positive program. They just like all kind of agree that capitalism is bad and that a whole bunch of other issues are bad but like the the basis on which they agree that this is bad like differs radically um and so i think that um well sorry before i say what i think um and then he like concludes it with like you know back in the day we didn't have much choice and also you know like we didn't really talk about this sort of stuff but now in the age of the internet uh, we do have choice in who we like interact with and who we organize with, and also, you know, we we end up like talking about like these things just because of how we interact and you know, like how we defend our ideas and so on and so forth. Uh, and he's like, yeah, like you know, the left can't really survive. Um, which, and I, I think, I think this is absolutely the case. Um, I don't, I don't know, like the timescale on which like the left will fracture. Um, and I think, um, yeah, it's 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 very complicated, and you know, um, I you know, being a futurist in this time period is really dumb because things are very unpredictable, and so you will look like an idiot if you make any predictions. Um, well, concrete predictions. I do. I do think, like you know, it's very easy to see if you look at the left, like you know, like a lot of it is just like bluster and um you know it's like oh you know like okay so we 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 understand like this particular dynamic like better than you know like liberals and people on the right and therefore you know we understand everything else um so i think i think i think i think actually like a big problem with the left is actually there's um there's this streak of (laughs) anti-intellectualism um that runs through it um and i think I think that's because um I think I think that's because one I think um a lot of leftists unfortunately they kind of saw back in like you know the post-war period um or yeah okay, sorry 
post World War One, and then a lot less in post World War Two. Um, they were like, oh yeah, the Soviet Union, like this is actually like going to work. Um, you know, like yeah, like this this thing, this project, like we can actually support it. Um, you know, like we don't really have to pay any attention to other considerations, and that obviously didn't work out. Um, and I think I think a lot of the left is sort of well. I think I think a proportion of the left is still like sort of traumatized by that, and I think a lot of the sort of dic- discursive um, and uh, sorry, um, so I think like a lot of the framing of issues, I think they sort of got solidified um, during the um, during that period, and it's been very very difficult to like break us out of you know these assumptions about like certain ideas and whether they're you know whether they support like left-wing arguments or liberal arguments or right-wing arguments or whatever um obviously i'm talking about like questions around computational complexity and you know epistemic limits and all that good stuff that the austrian economists accused uh well austrian economists used to like say you know central planning will never work um you know yeah, I think I think like that's a that's a major one, but you know, there's like other ones. Um I think that the left, you know, again going back to the question of values, I think that the left like doesn't really have a unified set of values. Um like, you know, it's just sort of like this vague opposition to stuff that's bad, but like when you when you actually try to ask people like to unpack why they think this stuff is bad, um, they don't usually have like a coherent framework from which to argue. Um, not everyone, of course, but like a lot of people. Can you still hear me? Okay, cool. My my computer just yeah um, yeah I, yeah that's, yeah I, go on. I, I, yeah, I, I was wondering. I mean, there are issues where I sometimes think. You know, like sometimes people dismiss the radical left, but there are issues. You know, like for example, the the issue with the woman selling churros, right? So uh, there is, you know, the slogan that neoliberals, at least the as some people have put it, the left neoliberals or the new neoliberals that they're on, on, on Twitter um, put the the slogan of of uh, of. Um, uh, attack or track in every corner. So now lefties have, you know, uh, adopted the slogan, uh, um, a true vendor in every subway. So I mean, the, the issue is very curious because, you know, sometimes the left, uh, in particular the liberal left, has been very formalistic about, you know, licensing and things like that. And and I think the, the, the more radical left doesn't yeah. relatively care in general. And and our issue is, for example, sex work. So um, generally, the left is uh, the more radical left has become increasingly favorable to towards sex work, and I think it's a very interesting development, and and it has shifted the conversation a lot. And and I wonder oh, what do so you think. I think, about I think the most the interesting moments. thing, um, uh, the most interesting thing that I've seen on um, sex work has been, um, I think, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, came out, I think, for like decriminalizing sex, something like I don't know. I don't think I, I remember like you know she was like 
there was like a post on Twitter where she's like, oh yeah, you know, like I have plans for sex work because of course she does. Uh, and then, you know, a bunch of sex workers were like, okay, like here's where all those, you know, here's where this is problematic and, you know, like this like isn't what we want and we're going to still keep on fighting. But I think, um, I think, I think what that shows is, you know, like I, I don't really care like what her plans are. Like, I think just the fact that like a female running for president can, you know, come out and be like yeah like i support basically like better like making the lives of sex workers better basically um i think i think that like says a lot um that's like a pretty massive victory and i think that um i think i think like you know like i don't think that happened because like elizabeth warren is like a nice person or whatever i mean maybe she, maybe she, i have no idea but i you know in this context you know she's clearly gunning for presidency and you know like if she thought that supporting sex workers would hurt her chances, she like obviously wouldn't do it. And I think I think it like really represents just um how how much like sex workers in America have done to um win cultural victories and you know like normalize themselves. Um, I don't actually the, maybe there are like statistics and polls that show that like that isn't the case. But I think um you know a female. Uh, someone a female like running for president who can come out and support sex workers like you know if like if you weren't confident that that was like not going to hurt your chances like you wouldn't do it because like it, you know um th- like it's like that is just such a like back in the day that was just such a strong norm um you know sex work was seen as like immoral or whatever um and you know like maybe a man doing it like wouldn't be as bad but like a woman uh unfortunately still in america you know like the pressures on you to behave when you're in office are such that um yeah like like i think like empirically it's you know you've just got more demands on you and you know people won't cut you as much slack uh and so i think the fact that warren can come out and say that um i think that represents you know fantastic cultural victories uh, by sex workers and it also represents you know the fact that like they're able to organize um and exert pressure uh, which which i think is great um and i don't know what that has to do with like the lefts on sex workers specifically um but like you know i i am i'm i'm gonna assume and i may be wrong but i'm gonna assume that you know like this cultural victory wasn't won by like um you know by like the owners of brothels um like don't to the democratic party i'm going to assume yeah. that it was like actual sex workers organizing um cuz i imagine i imagine actually um brothel owners they probably want to like keep sex work uh more demonized because now with the internet um uh i think that and you know there was um a couple of days ago on Twitter, there was like that post. There was, a, there was that reporting on um, Craigslist, how the introduction of Craigslist had reduced domestic violence um, for all women in the United States by like seventeen percent um, because it gave sex workers so much more control over you know how they see their clients, um, which is like insane. Like seventeen percent of all women. Um, that no it wasn't domestic violence it was like homicide rate i think which is insane like that that is that is an amazing crazy yeah, number yeah, is, um yeah and yeah it's really really fucked up what um like people trying to legislate against such sites but um yeah i think i think 
you know, that speaks to organizing by sex workers, which is good. Um, you know, I think I think it speaks to, you know, the decentralization of power and people having more options and, you know, um, people who would want to take those options away. And I, you know, I hope that um, I hope that they can fight and, you know, keep it more decentralized and, you know, give people more autonomy. And, you know, if the radical left like means anything, they will support them in that fight. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, it's, it's it's certainly an interesting development because some years ago it was seems that the left, at least the quote unquote yeah. feminist left, was uh, was being against uh, sex work, and now it yeah. seems that they have shifted. So I I think this is a uh, a positive development. So I, I think we could we could end up discussing a topic that we have talk a little bit when we were talking about conservatism oh, yeah. that is the, the issue of China because China is all over the place like, like we mentioned but it seems a very curious kind of developments what is happening I mean like uh, the issues with uh, uh, with the the West the relationship with China and the West is very complex I think it's it's very uh, different to to assess in, in all its 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 complexity, but uh, nonetheless, I think that there are, there are elements that are quite clear. It seems that, that that China wants to exert a leadership in the war uh, when the when the when America is going to 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 seat that place to 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 put the and, and it's very complex because I think that still one one of the most complex things for 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 China has been that American popular yeah. culture is all over the place. So uh, for China trying yeah. to, to construct their own popular culture is is, is is very different and difficult. And that has led that the Chinese financing actually uh, American films. Yeah, so now yeah, the, yeah. a very curious case was the, the, the case of Top Gun, like in, in, in the... In the in the first film, like the Tom Cruise had a, a jacket with the flag of, of Taiwan and Japan, and now it, it it's other flags. So I mean, like um, it's very curious, and, and obviously the, the controversy with with the NBA. Um, I think that it, it it's it's a very kind of complex uh, equation. I think that, that China. Uh, as we said, it's trying to figure out things. I mean, some people think that, that China is uh, is all over the map, and and to a certain degree, it's true. But the way that they have handled the, the Hong Kong brothers are show that they don't have control. And and the people in Hong Kong has been very smart. They have, you know, been much more prepared than the people in in Chile or or in Bolivia to 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 this project because they. They have been like throwing with arcs, uh, Molotov cocktails. You know, they have uh, even burning some 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 police cars. So, so they have been resisting in a much more epic way. They were a much more powerful army. I mean, in the revolution of 1952 in Bolivia, actually the people mm-hmm. defeated the army. So. I mean, the Bolivian army is not that strong, um, and, and and I think actually, if there is a country where where I shouldn't have mentioned it at the start, but if there is a country where where the people can defeat the 
the military in Bolivia because also in Bolivia it's legal selling um, dynamite. So there's a lot of illegal mining. So uh, a lot of people buy dynamite. So it's it's, it's very less affirming. In, in, in some ways, Bolivia is only trying to in a very strange way. Even on the own levels, it was so pretty little trying in very many ways. But Hong Kong was also uh, that kind of, of, of discourse. It was kind of a Pretty refined place, and and it seems that places where where there is uh, radical kind of forms of commerce are, are prone to rebel when you want to to remove the liberties and try to discriminate against them. And in the case of Bolivia, it was much more. Um, uh, ethnic, but in the case of, 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 of Hong Kong, it seems like being um, much more uh, cultural. So they consider themselves at least part of the protesters, consider themselves part of the West more than, than China. They they are cosmopolitan, they, they are English speakers, they, they, they have another look to life, and, 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 and it seems that, that, that there is. Even inside, if even inside China there is people that don't consider themselves Chinese, uh, the world is not going to to accept the, the China ascension in, in a very you know happy way, and 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 I think that's that's leaving China in a very tough okay. position. That was a lot. Um, <laughs> um, okay. Um... I I I think I so I think whatever I'm gonna I'm gonna say about China I think I'm just gonna I'm gonna preface it by saying it's probably wrong. China is a very big place. Uh, lots of stuff happening. <laughs> I've heard lots of good things about it. Lots of bad things. Um, yeah. Um, ooh, gee, China. Okay. Um, I yeah. Um, I think I think that China is obviously well okay yes obviously it wants to um become like a global superpower clearly um i think um i think that i think that china i don't know i i i don't know um i there's like a lot of conflicting stuff about it um i i don't i i think like for me to really say anything definitive about china i think i'd probably have to write it up first um, because you know it's all in my head and it's very like all, all over the place. So yeah. Um, but whatever you brought me on and you yeah. said you know in the Twitter exchange we had that you wanted me to talk about China, so I should all have something to say, shouldn't I? <laughs> um, okay. I think. Um, I think that. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think one thing that I think goes unnoticed in China when talking about China, um, I think that over the past eight or so years, basically since 2011, it's seen like a pretty massive upsurge in labor activity. Um, uh, I think there's this like site, I think it's called like the Bureau of Chinese Labor Strikes or something. Uh, basically what it has is it has like a heat, it has like a map that shows you all the strikes that happened in China um and you know it's like it's like it's it like whenever whenever they hear about a new strike like they put up another another um like pin on the map basically and you know like you can set it 
so you can set it to like show strikes over a certain time and you do one, you know, you can go back to like the very beginning. It turns out there's like been, you know, thousands of strikes um, or labor activity in the past um, eight years. Um, I haven't, I should probably look up, you know, how that compares to say like uh, Britain when the industrial revolution was getting on the way, um, you know, just for some context um other or you know other strike heavy periods in western history um but yeah um like that that appears to me anyway like a lot of strikes a lot of labor activity um also i think it i think there's a good argument to be made that there's um a lot of activity is being missed um because you know china is a very repressive environment they you know information sent they do a lot of information censorship um the communist party um like you know pretty much all authoritarian orders um it can it really has to project an image that you know it's competent and that you know like the descent towards it doesn't you know really matter um and so obviously you know information about strikes therefore which you know goes directly against that narrative uh, it's difficult to get out so you know they're probably underreported um but yeah, that that's that's super interesting, um, and it also it's also interesting because um, China China's population is aging. Um, I think in part because they had a um, you know they had that one child policy. Uh, when was that? I can't remember. But like you know they had concerns of overpopulation. I think, and so they instituted one child policy that um, appears to have worked. Uh, I think they recently switched that to a two-child policy, but um, um, China, like most industrialized places, uh, the birth rate has decreased significantly, um, and so they're they're going to be seeing a population crisis in the future. Um, you know, all all industrial all industrialized countries, I think, are seeing that, but I think China's from the what the reporting says seems more acute than other countries. Um, so like basic oh yeah so the consequence of that is i think that it looks like that um china is running out of cheap labor basically um what allowed it to industrialize was you know they had very cheap labor um and you know the combination of the fact that your workforce is shrinking plus the fact that workers you know are actually fighting for better conditions and better pay and all that other good stuff uh i think that means that you know the dynamic that um the dynamic that propelled China might might not hold up anymore. That necessarily isn't a bad thing. Um, you know, you can look back at periods of high economic growth. I think in um, in industrialized countries, um, and I think I think that like you know, it's very easy to industrialize when you're going from agrarian to industrial. It's very easy to have high economic growth then. But then once you get to like industrial, um, it's it's a lot it's a lot harder to have high economic growth. And one factor in that is that you know if people don't have enough money, they just can't buy what you're making. Um, and so you know like higher wages for Chinese people might actually uh, be long term positive in that regard. I, I I don't know. There's probably like people who are paid to think about these things who have better understanding. But like you know just looking at like various macro trends they, they they seem like you know obvious um 
that seems like obvious things that are happening. And the reason I bring them up is like people don't, you know, point that out. Um, China also wants to move to a more high tech economy. Um, they want to, you know, there's like all these big five year plans, plans going out where they talk about how, you know, they want to be like number one in advanced materials and robotics and whatever. Um, I don't know how much, like, I don't know how seriously to take those pronouncements. Um, I know that, um, you know, my intuition is that in, for authoritarian countries, it's pretty easy to, um, it's pretty easy to industrialize because like you're just copying a bunch of ideas that other people already came up with. And also it's like very command and control. Um, you only need like a couple of people, you know, who are knowledgeable in various areas to make stuff happen. Whereas, um, you know, if you're moving towards a, like a post-industrial economy, you know, based more on knowledge, um, first of all, you know, uh, all that censorship technology that you have, you know, like might, well, will probably hurt that having a culture where, you know, like, uh, free thought is discouraged will probably hurt that. Um, and also, and also the fact that, um, it's a lot harder to like survey, surveil and like monitor and make sure that your knowledge workers are actually doing the things that they're supposed to. Um, those are all, those are all things that may cut against, um, China's ability to transition to a post-industrial economy properly. And then add on to that, um, you know, uh, again, like running out of cheap labor and also an aging population and like China may, may in like a, like a decade or so, it may be like, you know, like the people who are like terrified of China's, you know, supposedly unstoppable rise will like, you know, look like idiots and, you know, in like, I don't know, like a decade, maybe the new common sense will be like, oh yeah, you know, like China, like it, like industrializing and stuff like, you know, that's the easy part transitioning from that. That's the hard part. That's, you know, what trips up authoritarian countries. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe, um, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That that has been a really interesting, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, the problems in, in, in Tibet, I think, are going to accelerate with the oh, yeah, possible sure. death of the Dalai Lama, which is already pretty old. Uh, also, the problems in the Xinjiang yeah, region that's uh, with the Uyghurs are, are very problematic. Yeah, it's it's not only a peer nightmare, it's also a human mm. rights uh, violation. And of, of the very severe categories, I think it's one of the tragedies of, of contemporary life. You know, in the recent years, it, it seems, uh, you know, a very, you know, deep uh, a reflection of how authoritarian can, can central power could be. And I think other kinds of developments are, are really interesting. We can talk about the, the, the particular relationship with China and, and, and Africa, which is kind of interesting, but I think we can yeah. do it here. I think it, it has uh, been okay. great talking to you. So where okay, um, people find you? Yeah, it's been great talking to you. Um, yeah, uh, mutual underscore A-Y-Y-D-E on Twitter. 
Uh, and then also I currently write at the Center for a Stateless Society um, as under the name of um, Frank Miroslav. Um, I may be branching out to do other things. Who knows? Um, I have a pretty shitty work ethic, so probably not. But you never know. Um, if I do, you know, I following me on Twitter is probably your best bet to figure out what else I'm doing. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, this is a lot of fun. I'm glad we could reschedule it. I really hope that this time the uh, audio saves properly. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so too. Well, thanks. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Bye.